Good evening and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, bi-weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters. My name is George, N2APB, and along with uh, Joe, N2CX, we are co-hosts for tonight's episode of Chat with the Designers that's going to continue the series on the test gadgets, test equipment you can build. And test gadgets are uh, the name of the game. Today's episode is about signal generators, the SIGGEN test gadgets. Before we get started, we have with us tonight Dave, AD7JT. As usual, uh, Dave often attends, but uh, tonight Dave's joining us in a little bit more of a capacity of really digging in with chat with the designers with us. And as this episode unfolds, you'll be hearing more from Dave. He's taken a really good liking to making the uh, the test gadget extensible and flexible, and uh, have it be an ongoing type of a good thing on the on the on the bench. So welcome to have Dave there. And also, by the way, Dave is part of Midnight Design Solutions. He is with me on in setting a, a major development uh, activities, uh, the direction and accomplishment of a lot of the different development activities. And you're going to hear a lot more about that going forward in the future, at least as far as uh, Midnight Design Solutions is concerned. We're going to have an alternative uh, episode of Chat with the Designers where we're going to talk specifically about some of the Midnight Project coming along, uh, Midnight Design Solutions. We have a bunch of really cool products and what we want to do is have a forum in which we can just get together and chat. Dave and I and Joe will be on from episode to episode of that. And we'll be able to talk about uh, various products coming out. And again, Dave has been hard at work on the bench and especially coding an awful lot. And we have some really nifty things coming down the pike. So I just wanted to set the stage there for Midnight Design Solutions Forum on the last Tuesday of the month. It'll be right here on TeamSpeak, doing the same kind of format here. So we'll kind of ping pong back and forth between the normal chat with the designers and the Midnight Design Forum. Okay, guys, let's uh, let's get started and get on with SIGGEN, the test gadgets. Um, hopefully you all are able to see the uh, the whiteboard. And just to set the stage, I'm going to turn it over to Joe and to CX for the background and the lead up. And Joe provides a lot of the insight of about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going to. To set the stage, we have been building a test gadget, a platform, if you will, an Arduino platform with a display and a, an encoder and little plug-in modules off to the side. You all can see the picture on the whiteboard. And the idea is that each month that we meet here on Chat with the Designers, we'll be discussing a different test gadget. If you look back at the, uh, the first episode for this season, or now two episodes ago, you'll see a whole raft of different test gadgets, different test functions that we wanted to be able to add into a growing test platform. And right now it's an Arduino, probably will be the Arduino software for a long time. And uh, But we might upgrade to uh, from the Nano that we're starting with to maybe a more powerful one downstream. But the idea is that we keep adding components, test and measure frequency, voltage, current, signal quality, different factors that come into play on our hand benches. And along the way, we are learning about Arduino software. We're learning about the basics of some of the uh, measurement capabilities that we have. And if you follow it along, you'll see that you might be picking up some tricks and tips and techniques, as we say on how all of this is done. So along that line, frequency generation is very core and it's at the heart of what we do. And there are several techniques. There have been techniques for ages for generating signals, of course, uh, back from the tubes um, right up onto some of the more modern technologies that we have. We wanted to hop in there 
and actually talk about some of the more modern ones that are simple to implement. And these are using devices and components that we've uh, you've undoubtedly either encountered yourself or with the kits that you have purchased from somebody else to build up. Or, you know, been right reading and being on top of uh, direct digital synthesis, DDS, or the SI5351, or its predecessor, the SI571. You did a little daughter board for the 571, right? That's a SI570. Okay, the SI570, right. So, um, technology is evolving. This 5351 has three signal generator engines, um, oscillators, if you will. Um, on a chip. So we'll be able to see a little bit about that. We wanted to grab the DDS and the ASI5351 and really make that the focus of our gadgets. And that's what this episode is going to be. But first, before we get and get into that, um, toss it over to Joe and see if, you know, the lead into this latest and greatest is the latest and greatest, or if we're just reinventing the wheel, or if indeed there is something new just around the corner. Take it away, Joe. Okay, thank you, George. Yeah, um, not too, I don't think there are too many people who were around in the old days, but um, back in the early days of radio with uh, Marconi and the folks back then, um, the only signal generators per se were uh, transmitters, and uh, they they had... Um, they sent Morse code by uh, generating RF in a rather crude manner with um, starting off with a uh, an electric spark that uh, was applied to a tuned circuit, which then rang at, at its resonant frequency, although not everybody knew what a resonant frequency was back then, to generate an RF signal and to radiate it. Um, the, the first um, thing that came along uh, to improve that was thing called the Alexanderson alternator, which was a, um, a high-frequency alternator, high for those days, which was um, VLF or LF, which had uh, spun at a very high rate of speed. It was an AC alternator, generated an AC signal, and um, could produce uh, many kilowatts of uh, RF at a, um, at a, a precise frequency. Um, just as a sidelight, there still is one Alexanderson alternator in use today, not commercially, but um, there's a station in Europe that comes on, I believe it's the 4th of July, and fires up their uh, VLF transmitter, their Alexanderson alternator, uh, and transmits and is heard uh, across the ocean, all over Europe, certainly, but also across the ocean. Um, but for years, that was the uh, the only way to generate a triple um, sevens um, patent. Uh, George, I believe, had to do with the uh, resonance and uh, antennas. Um, I see your note there. Um, for years, that was the way to go. But then um, when uh, Fleming and some of the other folks, DeForest, came along and invented the vacuum tube, um, something that could actually generate a signal um, electronically rather than uh, electromechanically, it, uh, it made uh, oscillators much more practical. And uh, they could be tuned and, uh, and used for all sorts of uses other than just transmitters. Probably the first use was in uh, heterodyning, so that uh, the uh, Morse code signals could be heard rather than using um, uh, modulated uh, uh, CW, so-called CW, for uh, sending Morse. Um, there are a couple of different topographies. The uh, most common types are the Armstrong, the Culpitz, and the Hartley, although there's some other things. They used uh, fixed inductors generally, and a variety of different variable capacitors enabled to tune them to the frequencies they wanted. 
Um, and having having uh, control of uh, frequency made uh, uh, making transmitters and receivers much much more practical, as well as test equipment to uh, to test the uh, to test and evaluate the uh, the transmitting and receiving equipment. But it all depended very uh, very strongly on uh, the quality of the components and uh, the construction of them. They had to be physically rugged, uh, relatively stable physically, although the uh, tubes generated enough heat that eventually the, uh, the boxes would warm up and things would stay on frequency. Um, in addition, along the way, some audio sources were, were uh, developed, some audio oscillators using different topographies, uh, such as the Wien Bridge. And just parenthetically, a very famous audio oscillator was generated, was uh, designed by uh, Hewlett Packard using a Wienbridge circuit. And um, that, that was actually their start. They began as a, a garage operation making um, a tunable oscillator that was, um, and their first contract for it, their first big contract was for, was with Walt Disney to, uh, who was making sound effects in uh, the movie Fantasia back in the 30s. Um, the, those oscillators are still around today, although not many people use them. I've seen a number of them cannibalized, though, because their tuning element was a multi-gang um, uh, variable capacitor, very high-quality variable capacitor, and people cannibalize them just for the uh, the variable caps to use in their uh, crystal uh, crystal radios. I've never done that. And no, uh, nobody's ever done that. Um, there were also square wave generators developed, um, things like A-stable oscillators and blocking oscillators for the uh, digital circuits developed along the way, although that, um, that really was kind of uh, uh, not, not used that much until um, uh, the development of uh, computers. During World War II, there was a great leap forward. Uh, quartz crystals had been, had been um, invented to use to uh, control frequency in oscillators. And um, as happens in wars, in time of war, uh, a whole bunch of money is pumped into improving technology uh, to use for warfighting, of course. And uh, there was an awful lot of money pumped into development of quartz crystals in quantity to uh, make radios for uh, the military, um, not only for uh, uh, determining frequency, but also for crystal filters in them. But the, um, this greatly enhanced the stability of transmitters and receivers and made uh, multi-channel radios practical. Um, you could just switch in uh, different crystals to change, change bands so that uh, instead of uh, having to manually tune and very carefully look at the dial, you could know exactly where your transmitter or receiver was. Um, and most of this still used, well, all of it still used um, vacuum tubes. And it was uh, basically manual operation. Um, in the 50s, transistors came along from Bell Labs, and that allowed the same types of circuits to, uh, to be made uh, in a much smaller and more uh, practical means for um, first receivers. Portable, portable radios were very popular, and eventually for transmitters. Still used the same configurations, still, um, still were manually tuned, and um, uh, not too much automation involved. But then in the 60s, um, integrated circuits came on the scene, and they really, really uh, changed things. 
there was um, in developing ICs, there were a number of uh, different uh, circuit configurations because you could uh, you could put a lot of complexity in one little package and put a whole bunch of, uh, as the word George likes, a whole bunch of functionality in one little device. So there were um, um, there were integrated circuit chips uh, that used LC tuning, but also other other functions were developed such as uh, function generator chips and um, timers and square wave generator chips. Two of the uh, premier ones were the uh, AD8308 function generator, which was a sine square wave and um, um, sawtooth wave generator, and the ubiquitous 555 timer, which uh, continues to be used today. They were all basically low frequency, but it was very easy to use one of them and a couple other components to make a very good uh, uh, generator. In addition, um, in the development of semiconductors, voltage variable capacitors came along. And in a lot of cases, they could replace the uh, physical um, variable capacitors, uh, providing uh, a tuning by means of changing a DC voltage across them. So that really changed things too. Um, there were CMOS and ECHL um, RFVCOs developed, not always the most practical, but uh, they did make some some products and test equipment practical to uh, to build things with um, without uh, LC oscillators and without crystals. And they also um, incorporated the functions of um, digital phase comparators so that you could have one IC that was a, um, a phase lock loop, which was a signal generator uh, locked to some signal source. And the signal source could be, a, um, for example, a crystal oscillator or a, um, an LC oscillator. And you could lock on very, very carefully to that frequency. When you added digital dividers to that, you made the ability to have to be able to tune to different frequencies by dividing down the uh, the oscillator, the reference oscillator, and locking phase locking the uh, um, the device, the oscillator in the phase lock loop to that. Um, and that that really really exploded things. At that time, there were a number of um, signal generators that used those things. To, uh, to very good effect. Signal generators then became uh, un, uh, uh, unencumbered by having uh, crude tuning. They could have um, digital tuning, um, push button tuning, digital tuning, uh, locked to very stable oscillators so that um, not only were they more uh, e or easier to use and easier to tune, but it also brought in the um, the era of uh, control of test equipment. You could have test equipment that you didn't have to operate manually. You could have test systems under the control of a computer or some sort of processor. Such control could uh, control and operate a whole bunch of test equipment at once. And um, as is uh, some of the goals in this uh, in this series of chat with the designers, it allows you to build a test bench with a whole bunch of other functions. Um, toward the end, and, and George mentioned these, there were some other synthesizer chips that uh, made signal generation very, very practical. Um, a couple of the examples are the AD985X series, which used an external clock oscillator, generally a crystal oscillator. They provide a digitally synthesized uh, sine wave output, and they are programmable to be able to adjust the output frequency. They have some limitations. They do require an external clock oscillator. So there are a couple other things which are the focus of uh, some of our gadgets here 
developed by um, uh, Silicon Labs, the SI570, which has an internal crystal oscillator, and it has functions of a variable um, crystal oscillator, variable in frequency, and uh, internal digital phase lock loop synthesis functions so that they can cover a wide, uh, wide frequency range and be controlled by uh, digital input signals to tune them. And then um, the, the last uh, device here, the um, uh, SI5351, is a, uh, a successor, uh, in a sense, to the SI570 and that genre. It has uh, multiple devices, several devices internally, so that you can generate several independent um, phase-locked, relatively stable uh, uh, signals in it with one device under uh, computer control. So anyway, that's you know a, a quick look at the history of uh, signal generators and how things have evolved, and uh, it leads right into um, what uh, George is going to discuss um, in the next segment. Go ahead, George. Good stuff, Joe, um, and nice job in recapping that. It's always nice to have somebody on the team here who's been from the very start, you know, the old spark gap days right up to now in order to have a really good grasp and be able to recount all of that. Thank you, Joe. I don't date quite back that far, but I did a lot of reading. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the AD 50, uh, 985X series, uh, makes me think back to 1997. You and I were at um, an FDIM session there in Dayton, and we were presenting on a topic that had a, um, the very beginnings of, for us back then, the Micro 908, in which I used a, uh, it was a large chip um, DDS controller. And the thing that really sparked that whole thing was an article in QEX back then from Curtis Pruce, WB2V, I think was his call sign. And he was, you know, he took a, a PIC chip uh, and used it as a controller with the 9850 um, DDS chip. And, you know, that, that sort of really was the launching of activities and interest in the ham radio community. But it, it kind of, it's funny, each of us, from our different perspectives, hops into the series, into the sequence of um, technology at our own different points. And um, it, it, in retrospect, it's interesting to see how it comes along. If you're new to ham radio, or if you're new to the technology of ham radio, you know you'll you're, you may be hopping in right now. And in years to come, you're going to look back and say, "Oh my gosh, that 5351 is an amazingly dumb, archaic chip." But right now, we see this is a really powerful um, chip, and you'll see that chip in a number of different radios and. Um, uh, hobbyist type of uh, projects going on. Uh, hey, I'm listening to uh, yeah a discussion here. Bye bye. Hey Craig, uh, something I you uh, you're keying your mic. Um, I don't know if you know that or not, but you're speaking. Oops, sorry. I, no worries. Just wanted to let you know. I, maybe you're using the wrong key for. Maybe if you use the right key for the uh, the right control key. <clears throat> that might um, that might work instead of the left one. Don't know. But anyways, Joe, that was a good recap. Thank you very much. And um, does anybody have any questions about this, uh, the history? Um, the VVC, I think, was was pretty cool. The, var the voltage variable capacitors, that opened up a lot um, for frequency generators, frequ LOs, local oscillators, and such. 
Um, and that that's of my own particular interest. But does anybody have any uh, anything they want to ask of uh, Joe? All righty. Well, let's uh, with that kind of a background. And I think I've I've mentioned it a couple of times on the list that we have chosen two devices primarily: the AD uh, the AD ninety eight fifty one DDS chip and the SI5351 uh, um, PLL, triple PLL synthesis uh, uh, chip as the basis for our ongoing uh, test gadgets. And just so I was hoping to have enough time, as usual, I ran out, but uncharacteristically, I have been able to achieve be a functionality before the show tonight. And that is what is actually pictured on the show, and we can talk about it. Um, so we, I took the DDS-60, which is uh, um, a DDS card from Midnight Design Solutions, and um, it's been around for like 10 years or so. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of people have been using it in their projects over the over the years, and um, I, I happen to have a bunch laying around here on the bench. So what uh, what I did is we I took as the first instance the DDS card and placed it onto our little. Um, gadget plug-in board. I pictured all three. There uh, is the first photo here in the um, on the whiteboard, and you'll see that we are continuing to use this small form factor. I don't know what the, the size is, but it's a really nifty um, solderless. It's not solderless. It is a solder breadboard that um, you can get very inexpensively through links that we provided in previous episodes. Urge you wholeheartedly to get a couple of packs. I mean, a pack is like $7.95, and you get different size boards in it and a bunch of these. So if you get a couple of them, you'll be all set for making your, your plug-in gadgets. Um, placing the little, fun little uh, functional circuits on these boards makes it nice. Now we can plug into the, uh, the general baseboard, the motherboard, as, as I call it, which is shown just below that. And uh, the DDS60 car that I have on there is, is a, uh, it's a different variety that I make for um, um, scientific, Ohio Scientific, I think is what it is. And they had an ROHS, a uh, Rojas, a, a uh, no-solder version of the board with the pins going down. So I just grabbed that and used it. But it's the same DDS60 that you see pictured on the webpage and um, um, that was referenced above. And all it is, there's there's nothing else on this. There's no active components on the on the plug-in. All it takes is just the pins from the DDS card and wires it over to the uh, uh, to the connector. You can see the schematic a little bit farther down um, on the whiteboard, and it's uh, um, again just plugs into what is growing to be a standard 12-pin uh, connector that's uh, on the breadboard and uh, on the baseboard. The motherboard um, just contains, as we've talked about previously, an LCD, the nano processor, the, the Arduino Nano, um, a rotary encoder for um, a rotary encoder for um, purposes of selecting different functions that we wish to invoke, and a little plug-in modular um, um, voltage regulator that gives us 12 volts, uh, 12 volts in and 5 volts out. Pretty simple, straightforward. Anybody can build it, um, and um, I hope you do because we'll be adding more and more to this uh, whole project as we go along. So, um, Joe, uh, we, um, you, you've been putting together your baseboard here, and how is that coming, or how is your maybe your plug-in for the voltmeter coming? Well, that part of it is coming. <laughs> But uh, we've we've had some discussions about it. 
Uh, I did not go with the uh, digital display that you did, so um, um, I don't have the digital display working. I got one from, I think it's called Arducam. Um, I figured, uh, shucks, I'd get one from Amazon, and uh, I'd get it in a couple days, and boy, that'd work great. Well, I can't, I can't get the darn, uh, even their darned uh, sketch that's supposed to demonstrate how it works uh, to uh, compile. So I uh, guess I'm going to have to break down and get one of the uh, one of the ones uh, <laughs> you recommended in the first place. Um, what I do in its stead is to use the uh, terminal in uh, in uh, the Arduino uh, development uh, um, whatever it's called the development system uh, instead of that display. A little more clumsy, but uh, it works and uh, gets around the uh, my stupidity and not being able to get the darn product. Uh, sketch to uh, compile. I, I feel like a real idiot sometimes. Not an idiot this time, Joe. I mean, <laughs> not with this particular case. That's not coming out right. But um, you sent that uh, the library over to me, and I could not get it working either. And we're going to talk about that, and I'm glad you brought up both of those points. Um, instead of just, in addition to just going through and saying, here is this simple test program for the DDS, and uh, I intend on going through the software a little bit, the sketch, and describing its functions, the various functions of, of uh, the program. Um, so, it's so it'll be easy for you, for anybody to go through and, and modify it uh, to suit your own needs and make it custom to your own uh, liking. But there are various little challenges to overcome. And I think most of us who have tried working with the Arduino have encountered that. Many of us have... Um, um, overcome those those challenges, but others might not have. So we can kind of learn from some of uh, um, the uh, some of our trials and tribulations. So if we go down to the um, uh, the, the the photo that's labeled demo, and by now I'm sure you've clicked it to to see the short um, MP4 video that I created. What the test program does, and we'll go through it later in a little bit, is just um, initialize the DDS card and then cycle through a sequence of frequencies between 10.001 megahertz and 10.002 megahertz. That um, the, sig uh, the least significant digit in that is the audio frequency. Um, and that is an audio frequency that you can hear very simply by taking any receiver that can tune to WWV as I've shown here with my cube, um, and uh, the makeshift antenna, which is that coil of uh, Kynar wire wrap wire, I stuck a, an, a bare end of it into the into the antenna port of the cube. So I have the antenna kind of coming out and laying next to the, to the um, signal pro, um, uh, scope probe. And that's enough to capture the radiated signal from the DDS card. And when it's tuned to 10.000000, and in CW mode, you can actually hear, of course, the tone going, and then it repeats over and over. But you can also see the signal on the spectrum of the SDR cube going up as the uh, the, uh, the transmitted frequency is increasing. So um, that's a bit of a simple test that likely anybody can do. You can also use a scope. Uh, I didn't put that picture on here, but a scope is a scope with a sine wave on it. And you see it in the demo, and uh, you see a nice, pure sine wave, which is a characteristic of the DDS, 
Um, it's not pure, <laughs> but it's much more pure than a square wave that is generated by the SI5351. So that's, again, another reasoning for why uh, to take the, these two different cards and use them. Uh, one generates the sine wave, the other is a square wave. Um, but when you see the sine wave on the scope, as I explained in the, in the demo, you don't see the changing frequency. And it's a little bit obvious, or maybe unobvious, but um, from your perspective, is that you're displaying a 10 megahertz signal. It is very unlikely that your the human eye or the instrumentation can show changes in the... Uh, in the frequency uh, of such small frequencies. Uh, in other words, your scope is not going to show it, even if you turned off the sync. It would probably, the sync, uh, the scope sweep sync, it, uh, it's not going to show the change in frequency. If you were to change the, uh, the frequency, the step frequencies of, uh, during a sweep to 500 uh, um, kilohertz, uh, you would definitely you would see more of a, a change. Change it to one megahertz. Sweep it from one megahertz to ten megahertz. You would see that frequency change in your oscilloscope. So that's another way to test this and see uh, how it's working for you. Again, the schematic. Uh, rolling down to the schematic, you see it's really the same motherboard as we had last time. Um, the power supply, the rotary encoder, the Arduino itself, and the display in the upper right. The little uh, shaded square with the uh, indicating the plug-in gadget, it just shows the DDS60 card kind of uh, plugged in there. Um, we will have the 5351 there shortly. Um, I'll update the page as I normally do uh, with accomplishments throughout the week, and we'll see that one on there with its own separate test program. Before we get into the software aspects, um, there are a couple of guys who are asking me about the DDS chip and the difference between it and, um, well, actually, a difference between the DDS60, for example, and uh, less expensive offshore versions of the DDS uh, uh, modules and so on. They're asking about DDS synthesis, the purity of it, uh, other questions like that. So I'm wondering if now it might be a good time to ask similar questions if you're unsure about um, what uh, what the DDS technology is or how we're using it here, just using three signals, load, clock, and data, um, and uh, maybe some of the characteristics of the output signal being generated from the solar card. Kind of a, now is a good time to do that if you wish, if anybody's got some questions. And this is Jim. Could you use the SPI library to interface with that device? You probably could. Um, and that's a great point, Jim. We're going to be getting to talking about libraries in a little bit. But uh, specifically, uh, the test programs, I call them the simple test sketches. The very first instance that you or anybody might uh, put together for creating a, uh, a control of a DDS chip, rotary coder, whatever. I try not to use any libraries in order to keep all of the the uh, logic really clear and in line with the with the code. Um, when you go to using libraries, there's a lot of functions that are built into libraries. You would be linking, and, and in general, what we have is um, uh, a library. If you're not familiar with it, it's just like a a set of functions that are off that somebody has developed, and they are sharing them for anybody else using an Arduino. For you to use a library that is an SPI library, like you were suggesting, Jim, or even the very specific DDS, um, a, let's do it this way, AD985X, 
uh, types of libraries, you would call a library, you would you would enumerate, you would put the library call in the program, and you wouldn't have to write any of the functions that wiggled the lines, as you will see is done in, in our sketch here, in the simple version. And to a great degree, that's a good way to go, because it uh, takes care of a lot of capabilities. You don't have to worry about it. Just call a function, initialize DDS. Boom, it's done. And you will see where I initialize DDS in this software. It's uh, very specific to the chip. You got to got to do some sequences that are uh, quite um, um, specific. So um, yes, there is um, SPI libraries. There are are uh, there are. Um, AD9851 libraries and such, and some of the projects around that are using DDS chips. I comes to mind is uh, WATEE uh, Jack, um, his um, antenna analyzer project, along with uh, I forgot who else he's doing it with, but there's another one yet. And they use some really powerful libraries. I'm not using it here. Yeah, I see. Uh, setting the frequency on this chip is pretty simple. Uh, setting the frequency on an SI5351 is very complex. Indeed. And you would know, Jim, because I was going to call you out on uh, uh, the library, the, I'm sorry, the program that you created um, for control of a 5351, and I was going to be listing it here. I wanted to get it working first before I, I actually put it on here. And did you use? A, did you call a library when you were um, whipping up your program for the SI5351? Oh yeah, sure I did. Uh, take a look at that library sometime and see what's involved in setting the frequency. Um, Silicon Labs has a Windows program that you can run and tells you how to set all the registers that are involved in changing the frequency on that thing. I don't have Windows, so I never seen it, but it, it's. Um, not exactly as simple as this is. I like this. <laughs> yep. And um, the the DDSs are really different animals from some of the phase lock loop synthesizers that are representative in represented in the 5351. Um, I was going to make a comment when Joe was talking about some of these chips from long ago and even the current ones. I get a kick out of going to a data sheet for the 9851, just to give you an example, or the 5351. And looking at the data sheet, oftentimes they're pretty thick, but there's often a good section in the front and there's a good section in the back that give you a good feel for what the capabilities of a chip or what a module are. And um, it gives you ideas, design ideas. It shows how some people have solved the problems of control or buffering or uh, synchronization, and it's a fun thing to do, just an aside. Um, so, yeah, we're going to use the 5351 from the, it's what I had handy, um, from one of Hans Summers' uh, QRP Labs products, the uh, the U3S, his Whisper and other digital mode uh, beacon device. It has a plug-in module um, that's called the Synth Board, or RF Synth, or something like that. So it's easy just to unplug it from his product and plug it into our, our, our test gadget. Um, and it's pretty inexpensive. He sells it for like $7.95 in kit form. Uh, you might take a little bit to get it, but then once you have it, or if you already have it, it's a really cool thing to do. And that's what we're gonna, you're going to see next on this, uh, on this whiteboard. 
And yeah. just to, just to finish my thought, I, again, tie in your software because you have a very nicely uh, a nice comprehensive program for controlling um, that uh, that device. Yeah, most of that program is involved in actually running the display to set the frequency. Yep, and that kind of comes to um, um, uh, reinforce my point earlier. I alluded to it a bit. The software being shown here as an example, and we'll get to that right now, actually, just really quickly, um, is simple by design. Again, I don't use any libraries. I don't uh, use any programming tricks. Obi and I were talking earlier about, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he, uh, and he didn't have to put on um, any pull-ups because he enabled the pull-ups in the device in the Arduino. And that's that's a good thing to do. Um, not, it's not too tricky, and it's actually probably a preferred way to do it. But I put pull-ups on the encoder anyways just because I like to have pull-ups on open collector or open switches like that. But again, the simple program doesn't do anything tricky, doesn't combine things. It doesn't. Uh, it's trying to be clear for beginning programmers. Um, Dave, AD7JT, is uh, doing the other side of the coin on this one. He's doing a, uh, not purposely tricky, but he's doing a programmer's version of the test gadget. And he'll talk about that at the bottom of the segment here. And it's essentially called the uh, the test. Oh, man. Dave, what's it called? What do you call it? You call it? The gadget rack. The gadget rack. So um, that's going to be a nice program, an advanced program that's going to take care of modularity, flexibility for growth, and all sorts of stuff. Um, other questions on the hardware side before we continue on? George, um, you might mention some of the issues folks have had with certain of the offshore uh, synthesizer modules. So why don't you go ahead on that, Joe? Well, I'm not an expert. Um, I've not suffered it, but uh, the, um, the offshore sources of those um, uh, 9850, 9851 modules um, are not all equal in quantity in quality. Some of them are um, grayed outs or absolute rejects from production lines that um, have been built offshore, and they may have um, incorrect components uh, in the filters. They may have totally wrong components. They have, may have missing components. So if someone recommends a source to you for them, they've had luck. Uh, I recommend you go with that source because if you just go potluck, you may end up with uh, something that doesn't function and you're just going to have a uh, pretty little piece of uh, um, hardware sitting on your bench that you can't use. Not to say they're all bad, but, uh, you know, it does happen. So it pays to find out an exact source for um, who has had success with one and to buy from that source. You're absolutely right. And, um, if 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 you're interested, if listeners here are interested, you can uh, scroll up to a, a previous photograph on the web uh, on the whiteboard here, where I list the three different uh, uh, frequency generator cards that we're using. The third one down there is called the Offshore DDS gadget. In retrospect, I should have had the devices off separate, no, unplugged from the. Uh, our plug board, just to show them more clearly. <laughs> the plug board's green and all the boards are green, so you go figure. Um, but if you look carefully, you'll see the outline, the specific offshore uh, uh, DDS module that Joe's referring to, um, and he's absolutely right. And 
succinctly, I'll just kind of go through it kind of quickly. Um, a couple of other projects, again, uh, the WATEE Antenna Analyzer, and there's another one I just can't. Um, it was uh, one of um, uh, the Poor Ham's SNA, PHSNA group was using these too. The idea was that uh, these modules can be had for like $5 free shipping, um, maybe sometimes 10 or $12. Now, compare that to a DDS card, my, my DDS60 card, for example, which is maybe four times that, uh, that price. Um, the first inclination is to go to the offshore. Now, I'm not, I'm not dis, dis, dissuading you from going to the, uh, um, from the offshore route, but the problems that people have are just what Joe was saying. Sometimes you don't get this exact same kind of board. Sometimes it's a different orientation. It's hard to explain, but it's just different uh, pinouts and different devices. Um, both the PHSNA group as well as the WATE group uh, have called them one of them type one and type the other one type two, and it's you got to have the right kind of connectors in order to plug it in. You never know what you you often don't get what you or what you think you're ordering, um, and then some work, some don't. Uh, those those boards for that price uh, order they use a um, um, dropouts. Uh, of the DDS chip. The DDS chip now goes for $30, $30 from analog devices. Um, you can get offshore versions for much less, but chances are very likely that you will not have an AD uh, analog devices chip, and it, it will be a, uh, either a, a clone or a fallout from a performance uh, um performance QA check on, uh, on the assembly line, something of that matter. We've seen some of the DDS chips that actually have, uh, for some, it was a special purpose DDS chip that didn't have the 6X multiplier internally, even though it happened to be touted as an AD9851. So the oscillator in that silver can you see on the side uh, doesn't um, and isn't multiplied by six to get your the, the, the right frequency for synthesizing the signal. That's not too good when you need uh, the signal uh, that's that the AD9851 is uh, touted as giving. So long story short is that just be careful. But nonetheless, I've I've bought some. I've got it working in my antenna analyzer from WATEE um, and um, and PHSNA. I've used the Type One, the Type Two boards, and we'll get more information about that later on. Somebody was telling me Jim Pruitt was uh, telling me about that a little bit, uh, talking about that earlier. Uh, this week. But uh, good cautionary stuff, Joe. Thanks. Or whoever brought it up, Joe. Okay. So um, let's, uh, in the interest of time, oh, I wanted to mention else, something else about the hardware. Um, I'm looking at the schematic or the board layout. It doesn't really matter. But um, oftentimes when we're compiling or just connecting up to the Arduino, sometimes it just doesn't connect. And you start pulling your hair out as, why doesn't this thing connect? Um, we could have an entire session just about this, and maybe we will for if there's enough interest. But uh, there's all sorts of things that you need to – little things that become standard in your way of using the IDE, the Arduino Integrated Development Environment, IDE. Things like making sure your port is set properly, making sure that your Arduino um, – that the processor is set to a nano, even though it's a, oftentimes all of mine are no-name offshore nanos because they are indeed inexpensive and they do work. Um, oftentimes you have to make sure you have the right baud setting on your on the serial connection to your Arduino. Um, little tricks about opening the windows and making sure that you're operating your, that you're trying to run your sketch from um, a common 
folder. I call mine the Arduino sketch folder. Uh, that might be recommended, um, but uh, if you're not, you kind of run into problems with location of your libraries and how your libraries are denoted in your program. Anyways, there's little tricks. All you, in the best way to do it is to hop in there and, and give it a try. All you need is a little Arduino, a Nano, or a Nuno, or whatever, and a um, USB cable to your computer, and you're in business. Even the USB computer, the USB cable supplies the power. At first, you don't even need that solar robotics regulator down on the bottom left. All right. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go quickly through the sketch, if there is interest. Um, I don't. Does anybody want to hear um, go through specific blocks of, uh, of the sketch to um, to understand what's happening in each of the different sections? The the top part, the um, the uh, setup portion, which is like the initialization, and then the main loop, which is called uh, void setup. Um, I've actually had the, I put the code in there, as I said before, very specifically and simply, straightforwardly, um, how to control the DDS60, as I've done it so often. And, and actually, initialization is a tricky thing with some of these chips. The DDS, uh, the AD9851 is one of them. People try to shortcut clearing out the 40-bit buffer and and all sorts of things, and they end up not always being reset at the start at power-up. So um, I, I clearly do that initialization. And then there are subroutines, what I call subroutines. They're functions down below that are called from the main line. But um, beyond that, is there? do we have interest here? I don't want to sit and bore everybody about uh, software if you're not really interested in it. And But if there is some, we can go through a little bit of it. I see you didn't do any pin modes on the input pins. Um, was that a question, Jim? Yeah, well, someone else mentioned they did the input pull-up on the input pins to get the rotary encoder to work, to work right. Yeah, that was Obi, and maybe you'll want to comment, Obi, in a, in a second. But um, And it's a little confusing, too. If you see, and I'm not sure I'll find an example. It was, on, it was in a rotary encoder example. There was a pin that was being assigned as an, out, as an input, yet there was an output command being issued to it. And this is typical of some... Um, pick controllers specifically, or any kind of intelligent uh, chips, that they have an ability for a pin to be either an input or an output. And even though you might specify it as an input, you can write to that in order to set it to either an initial setting or to a uh, uh, to indicate that it might be tri-state or open collector kind of an output type. And that sometimes is a little confusing because you might be writing to an input pin, if you know what I mean. Obi, could, do you recall uh, the, the situation you were kind of uh, talking about the other day? Uh, actually, it was just because uh, on the, uh, uh, yeah, the user group, there was somebody trying to figure out how to plug it in. And since there were no drawings at the time, I kind of went through this code and was looking through it and went, okay, it looks like you're using this pin and this pin for the encoder, but I don't see any way, since there was no schematic, I didn't see pull-ups. I said, but you can do it in code. So I went into the code and actually told it to do the pin modes, uh, set them as inputs and set them as uh, high for the, uh, the actual uh, pull-ups. Yeah, that's the old way of doing it. You declare the pin as an input, and then you write a 1 to that pin, and that turns on the pull-up resistor. Uh, nowadays, there you can do a pin mode with an input pull-up parameter, and it does that for you. 
Okay. Well, I'm still going the old methods, I guess. That's the way it happens sometimes. <laughs> yep, indeed. And that, that, that was the, uh, the case I was thinking of. And in this case here, we're seeing here at lines 50 to, uh, I guess the only pin modes there, 50, 51, and 52. They're all outputs. So really, it's not uh, the same kind of condition as we had for the rotary coder. We could look at the program from last week and kind of discuss that maybe offline. But that, that's, the, uh, that's the nature of some of these. And as I said, that's not some of the trickiness, but it isn't overly clear. And in those cases, I'd like to put comments uh, that explain what the line is, what the uh, what the code on that line is intending to do. And that's what the comments are with a double slash. Anything after the double slash is a comment, of course. Um, any other questions about the? Uh, oh, here's a tip, maybe about the about this particular software. If you all wanted to take uh, this as a starting point and maybe start um, modifying things, it might be a, an easy thing to do is to, instead of generating a sweep, well, maybe the first thing is to increase the uh, the step rate for um, uh, the frequencies. Um, and you can find out the place to do that. And um, another thing that would be easy thing to do in a software would be to, instead of outputting at 10 megahertz, you could have it output at... Uh, Maybe you don't have WWV on your receiver. Maybe it's only a 7 megahertz. Or take a shortwave receiver that has something else. You can change the frequency um, of where your sweep is being heard. Or um, just change it and, as Joe was saying, use the serial console to input a frequency and have, and have the software take the input from your serial console and output it to the DDS chip using the function write. I forgot what it's called. Write, uh, digital write. Is that it? No. That's not it. Hang on. Send frequency, of course. So you could have it send a frequency that you input from the console, and then it, you know, would send a continuous tone, and at a given frequency, and you could test that with your uh, with your handband uh, receiver transceivers if you wished. But uh, a simple program like this is really easy to mod, change. Um, let me know if you have any questions about it downstream, if you're trying to do something with it, and we'll see if we can work through it. Might even be able to hop here onto uh, TeamSpeak in order to do it a little bit more interactively than through software. No problem in doing that. For me, it's just really leaning over and flipping on the microphone and bringing up the TeamSpeak app. So uh, um, I wanted now to get in as we close in on the toward the end of the program. Give Dave uh, uh, the microphone and have him talk about the well. First of all, <clears throat> the uh, the new features using his his uh, gadget rack, uh, the new features that are that uh, he has in the voltmeter, the voltmeter that we did two episodes ago. Uh, the ability to read and display voltages from zero to five or zero to ten, and and show it on the LCD. Uh, Dave has done a slight modification of the circuit that I skipped. Um, we were going to put a scaling circuit on there, uh, as was indicated in, on that whiteboard a couple of times ago. But Dave uh, changed it to what is probably more of a conventional input of a D digital multimeter DMM. When switching ranges, um, and Dave used that to with the software in order to add some extra features. Dave, why don't you talk for a few minutes about what you got here? Oh my goodness, Dave, are you there? Wake up. Okay. Well, Dave must have gone uh, for an adult beverage or something. That's okay. That sounds like a good plan here too. So um, as you can see, some of the the features that he has were pretty nice. He changed the voltage reference to 1.1 volts instead of what we were using, 5 volts. 
and that enabled him to um, essentially handle different ranges in a different manner. Um, I'm not sure how he did it. I didn't. I haven't looked at his code, but uh, they are listed there. Initializes uh, the voltage using uh, ten point running. Oh, that's an interesting feature. If you built what we did last time, you'll see that you get a lot of bobble of lower digit. And it's hard to read the most, uh, least significant digits. He uses a 10-point running average um, in order to display an LCD. So he averages 10, 10 readings in a row and then displays that result. And he waits a little bit of time before he does it again. So it makes for a more stable display. Uh, Dave, are you with us yet? Okay. Um, you can take a look at Dave's code, download his uh, gadget rack if you'd like, and uh, see if you can get that running. It does work. So if you get some of the simple programs done and working, any one of them, the voltmeter, the um, uh, the SIGGEN, I'll shortly have the software for up for the, um, for the uh, milliameter uh, that we did last time. And I'm sorry, the resistance meter. Shoot. Joe, was it resistance or milliameter? Milliohm meter. Oh, I see. I forgot. Milliometer. Um, anyways, get that software working in the simplest of form, and then you can graduate up to downloading the Dave's gadget rack and uh, have a shot at that. So, George, uh, yeah. one sec. On the milliometer stuff, I have some additional info that I've not supplied to you, but um, perhaps you can put it uh, put it on a web page somewhere. One, um, a uh, more... Little, little more info on uh, doing a milliometer with some more functions and a little more usability. Plus, uh, I have some references on um, using, um, oh, I forget what the hell it's called, for, for, uh, for probe measurements in order to get um, very precise readings when you're looking at things like milliohms. Anyway, I have some references that I'll supply for you so you can put on the web page for uh, reference info for the gang. Okay, good stuff, Joe. Thanks. I will indeed do that. And that reminds me, um, when we're done with an episode, it's not a close the envelope and put it away in a in a in a folder and forget about it. Um, we often, I often go back and update the pages with additional information, updated software, updated diagrams, and whatever. So, I urge you to go back and look at other stuff. If you have questions, they might have been answered there, especially too with the podcasts. Um, second point along that line is that you might have long-time listeners might have might remember that we've done episodes on frequency generation. We've done episodes on the DDS uh, chip itself using the AD9851, the DDS 60. So uh, if you look back there, you can look back and get additional information. We it's not our intent to replicate everything in this latest and greatest, but to accrue a growing, uh, to accrue a library of, of useful information that can serve, you know, anybody's interests um, on the bench and operating and setting up a station or transmitting and receiving. So that's kind of good. Um, Dave, um, Dave, I stalled, I, sta I stalled long enough and um, maybe just give just an overview quickly of, of the, maybe the technique that you use to get the additional features in your, uh, uh, in the gadget rack uh, for the voltmeter. Okay, sorry, my, uh, for some reason my uh, push to talk quit working. I had to completely get out of TeamSpeak and back in to get it online again. Does it sound like it's working now? Working great. Okay. Um, yeah, what I wanted to do was, was modulize the, the firmware sort of along the line of the hardware and come up with kind of a core that would be the rack, if you would, that we plug the gadgets into. The core contains the uh, 
the uh, the display, liquid crystal display, and the uh, for output and the uh, rotary encoder for input. And I used the uh, I didn't use the rotary library that Adreno has. Uh, it doesn't cover the switch functions. But anyway, I've, I've got set up so that the uh, you, you could put all, all your code in in uh, essentially in, in separate files, for one for each gadget, and then you make very simple modifications to the uh, to the main file, the INO file, to to activate these, and then you uh, you essentially push the uh, the encoder and uh, activate the switch to step through the whatever uh, gimmicks you want on there or whatever gadgets rather you want on there and then it, uh, it it'll go through an initialization for the uh, gadget and then it'll service the gadget periodically while also uh, servicing the encoder um, i find this makes it a lot simpler if you have a simple uh, if you have a completely separate file for each gadget um, then you can have multiple ones all uh, compiled together uh, and then just step through and pick the one you want. Uh, it may be plugged in or not plugged in. It makes it simple to upgrade things. It's also possible for one gadget to call another gadget. There's a, um, maybe some applications for that in the future. Um, anyway, that's that's basically what we've got there. In the voltmeter, I went to... Uh, well, I'm lazy. I don't like to do all that soldering. So I just made one chain of resistors with taps in it. Uh, to call things out, and I was working for a while, and I, it, of course, it it, uh, it wasn't very accurate, <laughs> and so I went and I've been running off of the, um, you know, just running off the USB voltage. It's supposed to be five volts, but it, by the time it got got out to the uh, to the uh, outside the board, it was like 4.17 volts, and that threw everything off. And so I, I went and modified the uh, the code to uh, where you plug in what the reference voltage is. And then it calculates what the range is and you know adjusts everything by itself. You still got the switch for selecting the ranges. And then uh, to, since it looked like that could change easily, 4.17 volts was probably kind of soft. But I noticed that this particular processor has a, uh, a built-in reference voltage of 1.1 volts. And so I switched over to use that. And then I came up with the resistors. 1.1 volts seems like a funny one, but it... If you go through the uh, the Ohm's law calculations on your divider, it turns out that uh, you can get uh, pretty reasonable voltages, uh, voltage ranges using just standard resistors, standard 1% resistors. Uh, I haven't put that in yet. That's uh, the next thing I'll do is wire it in. I had to order the 1% resist, couple 1% resistors I didn't have, but uh, that took care of that. And then what you do is is the the way the the framework works is you, you like I mentioned before is each time you push the uh, uh, the button you'll switch to a uh, a different uh, gadget it goes cyclically and then um, once you're in running the gadget the rotational thing is used by by the uh, by the by the gadget and so in the case of the voltmeter you you just turn the the knob and it uh, it's just it really just switching the scaling in the gadget firmware. You still have to switch the uh, resistor thing, you know, the resistor select on it. But then there's another uh, possibility that could be used that you could, uh, another way to input stuff would be with you could push push the knob and turn it at the same time. You do that in the uh, MSNA. Um, and so that that's another way to input stuff to the gadget, like if you 
on your single generator when you were talking about that i was thinking well we once we get in there rather than change your voltages um you know using the serial monitor or whatnot turn the encoder and adjust it well if you're doing one hertz at a time it's not much fun so uh, we put in there where we could uh, what i will put in there is you, you push the button and turn it and then it'll select the digit that you're going to change and then once you release it then you can tune it it's it, makes it fairly straightforward and we can book the digit that's uh, that's being changed on the uh, on the display so that you wind up uh, you know controlling all the frequency right right from the knob um, anyway that's that's basically some of the stuff I'm looking at good stuff Dave <clears throat> and I think there are some techniques there if you were to look into the soft in, into the sketch that would be uh, interesting to interesting to people. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say one thing to look at is that I made a separate page for the uh, or a separate file for the uh, encoder controller, which handles both everything. Uh, I use a state machine in there that handles the debouncing and gets rid of uh, some other funnies that can happen with especially with mechanical encoders. Plus, it handles the switch. And the way it communicates with the with the firmware is that there's three or yeah, three variables in there. There's each time you turn the, uh, as you rotate the thing, it'll there's a counter that'll increment if you're turning one way and decrement if you're turning the other way, and then you can hold it down and turn it, and that does another counter. And then every time you push and release the button, it just sets a flag that says pushed and released. And so the the main guy is watching just the push and release thing. Whereas the uh, the the, the uh, gadgets will look at the the rotational functions, um, so it's a very simple interface, but all, everybody can use it. But it gives you a fair amount of control with just those those two or those three functions. I'm follow I'm following you pretty well, only because I um, I uh, help proofread an article that you're soon going to have in QEX. Um, in which you describe and and implement this particular technique for debounce and and so on. It's very very nice and it's very uh, controllable. And I think everybody will, if they look at your code here, or if they look at uh, if if we all were to look at the QEX article when it comes out, um, it'll become a lot more clear. But uh, it's it's an elegant way of of doing some things uh, with the encoder. Okay. Um, again, thank you for that, Dave. And uh, we're going to be talking more about that <clears throat> on the uh, Midnight Design Forums on the last Tuesday of the month um, on a regular basis, hopefully. We'll see how that goes. Uh, we're talking about the MSNA, as you said, which is the Midnight SNA. Some of you have uh, seen what the SNA um, appliance is, that we, the instrument that we made. Um, we'll be talking about... Uh, some attachment, well, the Midnight uh, Ultimate Keyer, finally we call the Muck. No comments, Joe. And um, then we're going to be introducing a new product. Not going to talk about it just yet, but uh, some people on this list uh, have been holding their breath for and looking forward to it. We're finally ready to, almost ready to start rolling that one out. So we'll be talking about these kinds of things or, or anything else that you'd like to talk about uh, there on the last Tuesdays of the month. So that, that wraps it up here for now. Um, if there's no other comment, uh, the final uh, final comment that somebody wants to make, kind of a quiet night from the audience. Um, but uh, nonetheless, hope you enjoyed this a little bit. And uh, uh, any any more comments before we close you down? Okay, nothing heard. 
So we'll uh, let that uh, be the indicator. Joe, you want to take us home? Sure will. All right. It's been an interesting uh, session here. Um, we started off with a little overview I tried to give for uh, signal generation and the history of it and how things have evolved um, leading up to um, some uh, modern uh, signal generation techniques that play right into um, doing the uh, Arduino-controlled test equipment that uh, we're looking at here. Um, and George showed um, some hardware he's developed using three different um, signal generator chips, the SI, the um, 809851 in the form of the um, uh, DDS60 synthesizer board, uh, another board with um, uh, the um, SI5531 chip, which, uh, provide, which can provide uh, three digitally synthesized outputs, and uh, yet another board using an offshore um, TDS uh, chip that uh, is a cheaper way to go if you can if you get a good module. Uh, then uh, George went a little bit into the uh, software that uh, controls um, his uh, baseboard, uh, describing uh, a philosophy of uh, starting off with a very simple uh, framework of um, functions, not relying heavily on um, outside uh, libraries that uh, can get very confusing, trying to uh, build a good starting point to, uh, to work from so that it can be understandable and have all the functions uh, work in a uh, reliable uh, fashion, which is not always the case if you, uh, you go with uh, libraries that are outside. And then finally, um, Dave gave a, a very good overview of uh, what he envisions as the, uh, the gadget framework sketch which is his implementation of a um, an ongoing uh, sketch, a, an extensible sketch that will be modular to, uh, to have a, a basic uh, overall function that can then uh, have other uh, sketches added to it in order to handle additional uh, plug-in modules for the uh, uh, for the test uh, system. Very good work, and um, Dave is very methodical, uh, very precise, does a good job. Thank you all for uh, participating tonight. Hope, uh, hope we didn't go too far over your head. As George said, uh, feel free to ask us on the forum, on the um, um, chat page, on the, um, yeah, the, I'm trying to remember the name of it. At any rate, the uh, forum, the CWD forum, uh, we'll be glad to answer questions and give you more information. And um, as George mentioned, the, uh, the whiteboard information will be augmented as things go along. It's not static. It will grow to uh, fill in uh, with more information, some references, and indeed if um, folks have uh, comments and questions, we'll try to incorporate that in the uh, expanded whiteboard as well. 73, and we'll see you next session.